This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. Every December we tend to run a little short on the guest department. That's been an annual event for the past, oh, decade and a half. Uh, Since for the past six months to year, we've had very few guests in our rebooted version here of Radio Parallax. I guess that isn't as big a factor. We do want to note that we have some wonderful people that are supposed to join us on this show in the not-too-distant future. Among them, Jefferson Morley, whose book, The Ghost, I highly recommend. The subtitle of it is The Secret Life of CIA Spymaster James Jesus Angleton. Angleton is a guy that uh, Americans should know a little bit about because he vastly influenced how our intelligence agency, the CIA in this case, uh, operated. He basically built himself his own CIA within the CIA. And since the Central Intelligence Agency has... um, directed foreign policy, shall we say, and had a hand in many events, foreign and domestic, well, it's important. And so is he. I'd like to excerpt a bit from this fine book a little bit later and uh, do that as a reminder to make necessary arrangements with Mr. Morley to bring him on the show. On last week's program, of course, we re-aired our previous chat with Jeff Morley about his book, Our Man in Mexico which is, in that case, the story of Wynne Scott, who was directing the CIA base in Mexico City and was the guy who was down there when Lee Harvey Oswald made his mysterious visit just six weeks before the Kennedy assassination. Mr. Morley, accompanied by military intelligence expert John Newman, made a very interesting breakthrough uh, in the case of the Kennedy assassination, or at least as regards the intelligence machinations surrounding the Kennedy assassination. And I should note that John Newman is someone else we need to bring on this program. He's written a series of books, including JFK and Vietnam. At a conference in Texas last week, I had a chance to sit down for a minute or two with Mr. Newman and, again, uh, got his agreement to come and talk to us. I think it'd be worth just taking a little digression at this point into what he had to say about the Ken Burns special on Vietnam that is currently airing. John Newman has made the case in the past, backed by a lot of uh, evidence that he has uncovered, that JFK intended to get us out of Vietnam. Interestingly, when I pulled into Dallas for this conference that I attended, the man driving my Lyft vehicle had been a sniper in the military. The conversation strayed into Vietnam, and he said, now my understanding was that JFK wanted to get us out, and then when he got, once he got assassinated, they reversed all that. And I had to point out that I was surprised that he knew that, since most of the public is quite unaware of that fact. John Newman doesn't have too much nice to say about the Ken Burns special. He said it's, there's a lot of good background data there, but it misses the key point that JFK did intend to disengage us from that conflict. Mr. Newman also said that he thought that Daniel Ellsberg, in spite of his heroic efforts to bring the history of the Vietnam War to the public with the Pentagon Papers, something we've talked about in this program many times in the past, he feels that Ellsberg also has buried that story. 
Daniel Ellsberg, of course, is someone we've been promising you for years in this program. We've got his verbal agreement to speak with us, but he is a busy, busy man. He is going to give a talk at the Commonwealth Club the week after next, and uh, yours truly hopes to go there and lobby him yet again and see if we can't land him for this program. Daniel Ellsberg is always a person with interesting things to say and which we would like to hear. We're still going to work on Franklin Four, if not in December, in January, to talk about his fascinating study of the tech industry titled World Without Mind. And just to round out our uh, compendium of forward promoting of guests we hope to get in the future, uh, Robert Lustig, MD, is somebody we've been uh, contemplating reaching out to for some time. He has a new book out titled The Hacking of the American Mind. Its subheadline is The Science Behind the Corporate Takeover of Our Bodies and Brains. And I'll have more to say about uh, that book and his crusade against sugar, which we've talked about before, before the hour is up. As we enter into December, the last month of the year, one does tend to look back at what has taken place to try and put it in perspective. We'll do a little bit of that as well. In doing that, of course, it's hard not to be negative sometimes because so many bad things are taking place in the world as, as they do every year. But uh, Running Against That Tide, I would note, was a wonderful special which I caught on PBS earlier this week. It was about something near and dear to our hearts, which was one of the great space missions of all time. In this case, the Voyager 1 and 2 spacecraft, which were sent out into the far reaches of the solar system. It was a spectacular success, and it was very cool to see the people that directed that operation provide their perspective, and some of the uh, nail-biting moments uh, were recounted, where people thought, well, the mission might just be lost. And that's worth a minute to talk about. Bradford Smith was apparently the imaging team director at NASA. He's an astronomer from the University of Arizona. Bradford Smith recounted the tale of how, as the Voyager spacecraft, I believe Voyager 1, was approaching Saturn, they all of a sudden discovered that they had a problem. They couldn't point it anymore. The table upon which the spacecraft would rotate to take pictures of different angles had locked up. Evidently, it wasn't getting enough lubrication into the gears, a very rudimentary sort of problem, not a software issue, an oil problem. Smith recounted that moment where they all, with, you know, sadness in their heart, had to say, well, the spacecraft does look like it appears to be in a great deal of trouble. We hope we can work on it and salvage the mission. And by basically doing what he described as the equivalent of rocking a car that's stuck in the snow back and forth till it gets out, they worked the gears one way, then the other, one way, then the other, until the oil managed to get back into the teeth, and voila! They had a functioning spacecraft yet again. On a personal note, I was sorry that when the chance afforded it, I did not speak with Mr. or Dr. Smith when I crossed paths with him back in 1989 as the Voyager spacecraft was going past Neptune. We were checking into the hotel near the event, and Dr. Smith turned to the clerk and said, we have a reservation here for Clyde Tombaugh. And I've told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again. I, I turned to the man and said, excuse me, sir, are you Clyde Tombaugh? And this little 90-year-old gentleman said, yes, I am. And I said, well, then I'd like to shake your hand because you don't get to meet someone who discovered a planet just every day. Of course, he was very pleased that his name still resonated out there with the public. Yes, Clyde Tombaugh back in, I think, 1930 was the young astronomer, age 22 years of age. 
given the task of looking through plates to see if there was a planet out in the far reaches of the solar system, and by God, there was. He discovered Pluto. Gaitama was much beloved by the scientific community, and no one, it is said, was going to demote Pluto as long as Gaitama was alive. But alas, once he passed, people took a look at it and decided Pluto really isn't like the other planets. It does deserve a demotion. Anyway, I really enjoyed watching that program. They did state that there would be no other mission like it, and that's a fact. Because, as it turned out, the Voyager 2 spacecraft took advantage of a once-in-every-175-year alignment of the planets to whip past Jupiter, then Saturn, then Uranus, then Neptune. If they hadn't lined up in a favorable way, that just simply wouldn't have been possible. And, of course, it won't be possible again until the 22nd century. Anyway, let's do some follow-up. We closed the first part of last week's program talking about the last word piece from the week, a reprint of an article in The Guardian by journalist Paul Lewis. The picture accompanying the briefing showed one hacker way with a thumbs up over in Menlo Park. This correspondent has mocked this location on many occasions because it seems that every time I drive past it, which I do on a semi-regular basis, I see knuckleheads out there posing in front of the thumbs up with a thumbs up. A friend who lives in Menlo Park told me that when she gets visitors from just about anywhere, they all seem to ask about Facebook. And yes, apparently some of them want to go down there and take their picture of a thumbs up in front of the thumbs up. I did mention in passing on last week's program that I I made a a very bad choice to take with me on the airplane. I related on last week's program that I made a very poor choice uh, in grabbing a book to take on board the aircraft and flying around the country. Uh, In choosing Anthony Summers' The Eleventh Day, an intriguing book to be sure, but, you know, reading about 9-11 when you're in an airplane, it's it's just not a good combination. Trust me on this one. We very much plan to continue the story of the Saudi connection to 9-11 and how it was financed by people from the kingdom. I was surprised to note in the interim this story, since last week's program, from New York, noting that insurers for American Airlines, United Airlines, and other aviation defendants have agreed to pay $95 million to settle claims that security lapses led planes to be hijacked in the September 11th attacks. Yes, they're suing the airlines for lax security. And meanwhile, there's been an extended effort to keep Americans from being able to sue the Saudis responsible for 9-11. Press reports noted that the settlement was described in papers filed last Tuesday in Manhattan Federal Court. Developers of the new World Trade Center buildings had once demanded $3.5 billion from aviation-related companies after hijacked planes destroyed three sky- skyscrapers among five demolished buildings. Lawyers said the agreement signed last week resulted from extensive arms-length negotiations by lawyers who worked diligently for months. Now, apparently, developer Larry Silverstein and World Trade Center Properties have collected more than $5 billion from other defendants through lawsuits, but not the Saudis, evidently. The money has aided the reconstruction of buildings on the 16-acre Lower Manhattan site, Articles noted that earlier settlements included $135 million paid to a financial services firm that lost two-thirds of its employees. American Airlines spokesman said the company was pleased to have reached a settlement. So I guess if you can stick your hand in a closer deep pocket, well, you might as well do it and see what you can extract from it while you may or may not be working on going after 
the perps in this case. Am I wrong? Yes, I realize foreign nations may not have, uh, you may not have standing to sue one in a domestic court, but there are international tribunals who exist to do such things, and I'm just wondering why we're not using them. Well, I, I know the answer to that, but one does hope that somewhere along the line justice is going to prevail. Anyway, speaking of uh, Dan Ellsberg, as we were a second ago, the epic battle which he fought back in 1971 over the Pentagon Papers is evidently going to be revisited in a Hollywood film by, unfortunately, Steven Spielberg. Tom Hanks is evidently going to play the late Washington Post editor Ben Bradley, with Meryl Streep acting as the paper's late owner, Catherine Graham. We need to get James DiEugenio back on this program to talk about uh, what he had to say about Mr. Ben Bradley. I think that would be entertaining. Suffice it to say that Mr. DiEugenio believes there's a little more to the story of Watergate and Bob Woodward and Ben Bradley, etc. than the public has been informed, and we would like to have him round out the picture for us. And speaking of cinematic portrayals of history, I was stunned to see in the Weekend Extra down in the Bay Area um, an article that said the Civil War was unavoidable, said Ken Burns. And um, (laughs) apparently there's an effort afoot to, to talk about how if we just had better compromise back in the 1800s, why the Civil War and all that bloodshed might well have been avoided. Well, uh, maybe, but if you know your history at all, and apparently most people do not, you would be aware of the fact that from the founding of this nation until we did erupt into bloody conflict, the slavery issue was something that the states just couldn't seem to resolve. To quote from the piece, which appeared in the paper, is noted that recently White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders cited the film, The Civil War, in defense of Chief of Staff John Kelly, who had said that the Civil War could have been avoided with more compromise. She said, I don't know that I'm going to get into debating the Civil War, but I do know that many historians, including Shelby Foote in Ken Burns' famous Civil War documentary, agreed that a failure to compromise was a cause of the Civil War. I think there are a lot of historians that think that. Go to the article. Yeah, and a lot who don't. I have to say that all my life I've heard the Southern perspective on the Civil War is that it was a states' rights issue. It was a matter of federal control over what the states wanted to do. Well, that's true. But no one was arguing about regulation of the intercoastal waterways or management of timber resources or trade issues. It was all about the fact that the southern states based their economies upon the use of slave labor. The piece in the paper noted that when Ken Burns sat down to to do his excellent documentary, he was assisted by the historian Jeffrey Ward. Jeffrey Ward did note that Shelby Foote, who was featured prominently in the documentary, scorned slaveholders and abolitionists alike, and contended in the documentary that the war happened because we failed to do the things we really have a genius for, which is compromise. Jeffrey Ward praised Shelby Foote as a master storyteller, but added that his views on its causes were his own. The cause of the war, Ward added, was slavery, to which we would add, duh! Anyway, as you may or may not recall, the Republican Party in the 1850s was an anti-slavery party. When the Democrats in the 1860 election ran three different people for president, well, the Republican Abraham Lincoln managed to sneak in a victory. 
Southern states had promised that if Lincoln was elected, they would secede from the Union, which they promptly did. War then ensued over the North's effort to keep the Union together. So was it all about slavery? Well, duh, yes. Yes, it was. You know, sometimes I just sit back and ponder the things that we talk about in this program and just despair. And to change the subject rather dramatically, I would like to note that this time of year there's a lot of football on television as the great American disgrace of college football enters into its bowl season. I think the main reason that college football is a national disgrace is the fact that most people playing college football are not college students. At least a very large percentage of them have no business being in a college or university. They are there solely for their ability to play football and other sports, of course. And when it comes to professional sports, I have to note that football is more interesting to watch than almost any other sport in my mind. But the reality of what professional football is doing to its players is really sinking in and kind of spoiling the party. should note that according to the Washington Post, deceased New England's Patriot tight end Aaron Hernandez suffered the most severe case of chronic traumatic encephalopathy ever discovered in a person his age, according to researchers at Boston University. The football player who hanged himself in his prison cell last April at age 27 was serving a life sentence for murder. Based on what his brain looked like, they said he would have experienced significant damage in his decision-making, judgment, and cognition. Now, you can't say that made him a murderer, but you can make the educated guess that the ability of his brain to override murderous impulses were likely impaired. And to change the subject yet again, we would note that pretty much every December, we have a report from this or that consumer group advising us to beware of a certain set of Christmas toys. In general, a lot of these toys have small pieces in them that supposedly children could choke on. And I guess, you know, if you want to take it to its logical extreme, we would have to make sure that no one had any object you could bash somebody over the head with, which would include almost every object out there. I mean, dangerous toys, uh, something I suppose we, we should pay some attention to. But in the case of Radio Parallax, we cannot resist referring back to one of David Letterman's immortal top ten lists on this very topic. Referring back to the Late Night with David Letterman book of top ten lists, the original edition from, I don't know, is this 1991? <laughs> we have top ten unsafe toys for Christmas. Number ten, Junior Electrician Outlet Patrol. How about number eight, the Black & Decker's Silly Driller? Number six, Remco's Pocket Hive. And there's number four, Will It Burn from Parker Brothers? Number three, the Chimney Explorer. And number two from that list of the top ten unsafe toys for Christmas, My First Ferret Farm. Yes, we do miss David Letterman, and glad to see he's coming back on Netflix in some capacity, I understand. All right, we've got about three or four minutes left on this segment, so I think what I'm going to do is, what I promised to do at the top of the show, is do at least one little excerpt from Jefferson Morley's book, The Ghost. Noted Mr. Morley in his introduction, when I started writing the biography of James Angleton in January 2015, the notion that a, quote, deep state, unquote, shaped American politics was largely unknown. When I finished The Ghost two years later, the the term commanded belief from the President of the United States and a near majority of the citizenry. 
In April 2017, ABC News pollsters asked Americans about the possible existence of a deep state defined as military, intelligence, and government officials who try to secretly manipulate government policy. A plurality of respondents, 48% agreed, while 35% described the idea as a conspiracy theory. The belief in deep state rang equally strong among Republicans and Democrats. Worley goes on to say, I did not rely on the concept of a deep state in researching Angleton's career, but I wanted to tell his story precisely because I had encountered spectral glimpses of his handiwork in my reporting for the Washington Post and for my first book, Our Man in Mexico. When I finished The Ghost, I realized Angleton and his conspiratorial mode of thinking illuminated the new discourse of the deep state. But how? Among the various theories of the deep state, the only common denominator is the role of the secret agencies created by the National Security Act, what Professor Michael J. Glennon calls the double government. Since 1947, Glennon notes, the three branches of the Republican government formed in 1789 have been joined by a fourth branch of military and intelligence organizations, which wield power largely beyond the view of the Madisonian government and the voting public. Whatever the label applied to the national security sector of the U.S. government, Angleton embodied its ascendancy after World War II. Thus, The Ghost is a biography that interrogates today's headlines. Was James Angleton a defender of the Republic, an exemplar of double government, or an avatar of the emerging deep state? This is his story insofar as it is known. We should note that James Angleton was a man of literary bent. He launched a literary magazine called Furioso when he was at Yale. He wound up befriending the poet Ezra Pound, a man who advocated for the fascist government of Italy and was later imprisoned for his, for his good work by the U.S. government after the war ended. Since we have only a minute or two left, we'll fast forward to the end of this book to note that he was known to wax philosophic on occasion about his life, career, and history. Talking to author Joseph Trento, Angleton said, Fundamentally, the founding fathers of U.S. intelligence were liars. The better you lied and the more you betrayed, the more likely you were to be promoted. These people attracted and promoted each other. Outside of their duplicity, the only thing they had in common was a desire for absolute power. I did things that, looking back on my life, I regret. But I was a part of it and loved being in it. Alan Dulles, Richard Helms, Carmel Ophi and Frank Wisner were the grand masters. If you were in a room with them, you were in a room full of people that you had to believe would deservedly end up in hell. Pausing, Angleton then added, I guess I will see them there soon. Noted Jefferson Morley, Angleton offered secrets leavened with hints of wisdom to his allies. He called up former White House aide Dick Cheney, this is 1986, now a Republican congressman in Wyoming, to set up a dinner. He said he had something he wanted very much to tell him. He never got the chance. And the future vice president was left to ponder what fantastic secrets James Angleton might have imparted. It should also be noted that the notorious spy, Kim Philby, who was instrumental in lousing up Allied efforts to... Uh, work against the Soviet Union during the Cold War because he was, in fact, a Soviet agent, was a good pal of Angleton's. And apparently, this betrayal preyed on Angleton's mind and led him to lead a notorious mole hunt, 
within his counterintelligence division of the CIA, which was looking for an agent that the Soviet Union had placed within their midst. Such an agent was never found. It was decided by cooler heads at the CIA, Angleton's superiors, that whether there was a Soviet spy or not within their midst, Angleton was doing more harm than they could hope from such a traitorous influence. Though to Jefferson Morley, the obituaries in the New York Times and Washington Post about Angleton cast him as a flawed man with vision, a man who was betrayed by Kim Philby and disgraced by spying scandals, but never discredited and often admired. Morley notes that Angleton was fortunate that so much of his legacy was unknown or classified at the time of his death. We now, of course, know a great deal more about the man, and uh, I hope that we will be talking about that in the weeks to come. Writing about this book, the aforementioned Anthony Summers, who was a Pulitzer Prize finalist for The Eleventh Day, said anyone interested in the CIA should not fail to read The Ghost. I encountered James Angleton time and again, not only in the course of research, but on Memorial Evening, literally. I say memorable only because amongst hundreds of interviews I've conducted, he indeed came over as a phantom, seemingly cooperative, yet always inscrutable. Nobody has focused on him, mind what can be mined, as Jefferson Morley has now done. Essential reading for anyone intrigued by the vital mysteries of U.S. intelligence at a pivotal time in our history. Let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. 